Hello there, and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name is Jim Hustrip, and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I seek to understand the people and the process behind the best music in TV, film and games. I'm talking to composers, but I'm also talking to editors, music supervisors, directors, and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. Hello there. Welcome back. Um, It's been a long time. About a a year, 18 months, two years, I don't know. Too long. However long it's been, it's too long. Um, But thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening. Um, we're back with a vengeance with season two, although it's not really season two. It's just a continuation of season one. But given the, the large period of time in between, I'm billing it as season two. Um, and I am thrilled to be opening up season two with Cristobal Tapia de Villa, um, who, if you listened to the first ever episode of Sync Music Matters with Stephen Warbeck way back when, um, we talked about Cristobal. We referenced him in relation to music that at that time was was exciting us. It was ins- inspiring us, um, and specifically with regard to White Lotus. I don't actually think I'd seen White Lotus at that point. I think I'd literally just listened to the soundtrack, but it's uh, it was fantastic. Um, so yes, it seems very fitting that we open season two with Christabel. Um, so for those of you who don't know him, um, Christabel's a Chilean-born Canadian composer and producer. Uh, he shot to fame in 2013 with his score for the deliciously sinister and mysterious TV series Utopia, um, which did very well, I think, all over the world, but certainly it was in the UK um, was highly regarded and it was one of those shows where upon watching it I had to google the composer because it felt like something special was happening Um, it's an incredible score highly recommend you go and listen to it and indeed watch the series if you haven't already Um, since then Christabel has scored well loads of films I mean 2016 film The Girl With All The Gifts Um, he's recently done Smile Uh, he did an episode of Black Mirror uh, Black Museum Um, and of course who can forget, uh, White Lotus, both season one and season two, um, for which he won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Original Main Title Theme Music. So that's to name but a few of his credits, but um, given his body of work, you could suggest that Christabel enjoys making the viewers feel a deep sense of unease, um, but he does so beautifully and with a, a, a real sense of irreverence. So uh, Christabel Tapia de Vere, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So the first question that I like to ask all of the guests on Sync Music Matters is if we were to rewind uh, to when you were maybe sort of 10 years old, around that age, and someone were to have asked you, what would you like to be when you grow up? What would you have replied? A scientist or a musician? Uh, I suppose because there's, um, it's somehow similar uh, in a way that uh, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm doing scientific experiments in the studio some, somehow. I mean, the idea of science, it's, um, it was a kid's idea of, you know, uh, discovering things, uh, inventing things and, uh, and things exploding in some laboratory and whatnot. And was like there that. something in particular that got you interesting in, in science? Like books, television, uh, people within your life. Oh, um, I, I I always liked experiments. 
So um, even the very basic stuff we did in school uh, with, uh, you know, whatever chemicals, uh, uh, you know, burning or, uh, you know, um, uh, making, changing the color of your, of your skin or uh, uh, anything really. Um, I remember doing lots of experiments at home too. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I, I like natural science uh, also and, uh, you know, animals and uh, dinosaurs uh, and, and stuff like that. So I, I had l lots of books uh, uh, about all of that and um, yeah uh, but I, I, I don't know if I was really like being serious like to, to become you know uh, somehow a, a doctor or scientist or anything like that uh, I suppose it was more of a game uh, in some way like, like music Interesting as well with the, the idea of experimentation because I would say that your music feels very experimental in that it's it it dares to be different it challenges maybe some of the some of the norms so do you feel that that interest in experimenting carries through into into your music um you um you mean if if it's a, a conscious thing of always going experimental? Or? Well, yeah, or I suppose it could be subconscious, but just your your interest with experiments and trying things, and then yeah. that that manifesting perhaps through creatively. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's mostly the 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 surprise event event and, and then where that event is going to take you next uh because if you find something you didn't know about or you were not expecting or uh, it's somehow like uh opening a door into a, a new th thing or a, 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 a different reality almost where you you can go th down that path and, and uh, do all these new things uh, because somehow you broke a wall or, or something like that so I um, I, I suppose uh, making a good melody is uh, as important as uh, the way the melody is done or produced or um, uh, somehow I found the, I, I, I find the texture uh, before the melody, and uh, and sometimes the the weirdness or or the novelty of a sound can justify going with a melody that is not that uh, uncommon or that is just a pop melody uh, or pop a series of chords that. Everybody knows, and uh, there's nothing new about it. But uh, it, the way it's done, it feels like, uh, I, or I, it feels to me like there's uh, there's something new to it, or it sounds like the future, or it sounds like uh, you know uh, we might be breaking something with the past, and now it, it feels new. Although we're playing with the same notes, um, in the sense that I mean. I don't know how many, I don't know if you, can, you could say today that if you listen to mainstream music, if you're listening to any new melodies or any new chords or anything like that, uh, and it, 
it feels like if you think you're listening to something really new, it's maybe because you don't know enough about history of music or you haven't listened to enough music or, or whatever. But it feels like it, it, everything is there already. And uh, uh, harmonically speaking um, uh, or um, theoretically speaking, it feels like... Um, I don't know how to say. I mean, it's like uh, human stories. I mean, films and everything, where it's always uh, the same subjects that that we've been dealing with since forever, uh, and it's just the 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 way that we present them to uh, uh, in a certain period of time that resonates with the people from that time. But uh, it's, it's always going to be us being angry or in love or sad, uh, and, it, and it's all the basic emotions. And it feels music, the theory of music feels a little bit like that. Like, like uh, it's always the same thing. Uh, we just, you know, uh, 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 juggle, how you say? Uh, like you have, the, yeah, you juggle with the same things and, and somehow try to come up with a different outcome uh, that's going to resonate uh, in the moment and whatever we're living in uh, yeah. right now. Well, I I honestly believe that you you do that. You you do create something which it feels like it's not been done before, or it's a new take. And actually, it reminds mm. me of a quote by um, Dead Mouse. He said said something along the lines of "All producers copy, but." Mm good producers copy in new ways and it's the idea that you know all the notes are the same we've mm. all we're all using the same tools essentially but hopefully we're combining different elements in different ways mm. um we'll come on to the um your creative process uh when we go um under the skin but because going back to when you were younger so you wanted to either be a scientist or a musician what were the stages what were the steps that took you from this young boy who was fascinated by science and and obviously music as well how what was the evolution to becoming a composer um i, I think the composer thing happened just uh like uh, in, in 2012, really. Uh, before that, I never had a notion of uh, becoming a composer or uh, writing music for uh, images or anything like that. Um, I suppose uh, without thinking of that, I went somehow in that direction by producing my, uh, you know, producing instruments or uh, experimenting with, uh, I suppose, when I was like maybe... Uh, 14 or something like that in Chile. Um, um, I heard from an uncle, I, I think, for example, that he told me that you could turn a, a, turn a speaker into a microphone uh, by rewiring the, the, the speaker or something like that. And, I, and I, I tried to do that. I took an old speaker uh, that I connected to a ghetto blaster who had uh, an input for a microphone and um, somehow it worked and I, I attached that speaker uh, I taped it to the top of uh, uh, an acoustic guitar that we had and I was able to uh, amplify uh, the guitar uh, it was a really interesting sound so um, so I suppose I somehow um, I'm doing the same things today that I was doing when I was a kid, uh, in that sense, uh, because uh, those type of sounds 
uh, are never there, there's no way to make them better there's no betterizing uh, those kind of experiments um, uh, for example uh, this speaker that I had I, uh, sometimes I, I would uh, tape it to the to the floor and when I would just tap with my foot on the floor uh, it would amplify through the um, the ghetto blaster and then I would uh, blast, uh, I would put the volume to the max, and it, it sounded almost like a hip-hop kind of sound, uh, a kick drum, uh, which was super interesting. And um, if I wanted to redo that kind of sound, I would do exactly the same thing, uh, because there's no professional amplifier or this and that that uh, you know becomes somehow better. Uh, these kind of sounds are always errors or mistakes or... Uh, and they just happen and you have a really interesting sound. Um, so, um, you know, I, uh, I would do stuff like that or I discovered that uh, this ghetto blaster, I could, you know, press on the record button uh, halfway and it would record uh, too fast. So the, the cassette would, would go like twice the speed. So if I record my voice, uh, and then play it back at normal speed, then it would sound very low. So it would sound like a monster and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that's somehow the, the laboratory that uh, I suppose I was uh, like, it, it's like studying production techniques maybe or something. Uh, but for me, it was just discovering or, or trying to find a way around not having uh, proper instruments or stuff like that. And so at what point, because you, you've had a, a number one in Canada, haven't you, with your ba with band One Ton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, <clears throat> uh, it, it was a very pop uh, um, band uh, that, that we had. Um, so yeah, it, it was, um, uh, uh, somehow it was number one, uh, in many, in many places in Canada. Uh, I, I, I think it did pretty well. Um, we had some opportunities to play with, uh, some big acts. I, I remember we, uh, opened, we, we opened for Beyonce in Toronto, in this in, in the in the stadium of Toronto, and at that time I remember uh, Solange, her little sister, was getting started, and uh, she was opening too. So uh, it was us, Solange, and then uh, Beyonce. Uh, uh, so uh, and so like that was really interesting to get to live uh, things like that uh, because like a, a stadium. Screaming uh, at you when you play, uh, particularly with those type of crowds, uh, uh, which is mostly kids and, and lots of girls, uh, for, for because of Beyonce, uh, and they would scream so loud uh, you you could barely hear what you're playing, uh, and, and those experiences are, are really really interesting. And although it has nothing to do with the job of a composer, it feels to me like. Um, People who have done uh, live, uh, who know the stage and who know uh, the bands and being on tour and stuff like that, uh, and make albums, uh, it's, uh, are, those are to me the most, um, not, 
I personally connect more with those type of composers. Uh, so people who, uh, you know, Johnny Greenwood and uh, Mika Levy and uh, whoever, Trent Reznor, <clears throat> who bring a pop sensibility maybe into what they're doing, even though, uh, like Johnny Greenwood, he, he's mostly doing orchestral stuff and influenced by n nothing like pop music, uh, I hear lots of, uh, I, don't, I don't know, Messian maybe, and, uh, and this and that in his music. But, uh, but still, uh, uh, there's something about, uh, there's something it feels very different about a composer, so somebody who went to school to do this job, and they do the job and, uh, and all that. And some, some, somebody who improvised uh, themselves as a composer, uh, such as my, myself, uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it always feels a bit pretentious if uh, I'm talking about what I do and, uh, you know, I'm Mr. Composer and this and that, uh, because I don't feel any different than when I was just, you know, working in a bedroom, making beats and stuff like that. I, I, I like to keep the same vibe. And do you think that's it's interesting what you're talking about there because the idea that people who've played live or played you know played music i suppose f for the fun is there a do you draw a distinction between composing from the head and composing from the heart so people people who studied it would look maybe take a much more intellectual approach to what is right and what isn't whereas perhaps someone who yeah. hasn't studied it would be more experimental yeah. Um, there's something weird about um, uh, about the ac academic side of composition or, or um, planning. Uh, I remember seeing a video of um, uh, Michael Dana um, about uh, he was speaking about his score for uh, the life of Pi. And he seemed he seemed destroyed after this uh, experience. Uh, the way he was talking about it is like this almost killed him. Mm. Uh, it was a huge movie and it took a very long time. But he explained that he he had lots of plans with the director, and 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 they did all that. Uh, and they recorded lots of stuff and uh, and somehow nothing worked. Uh, it was all very nice on paper, but somehow they were just not there. Um, <clears throat> so you have a bunch of great ideas, uh, which should work somehow, but that's the thing that's weird with academics is, is that it, there's no... Uh, for example, I think in this situation with, with Michael Dana, um, I think they, they went for the heart they were really looking for the heart uh, of the movie and the music. And in the end, there's lots of, I think they added maybe more pop things, more uh, uh, melodic stuff and whatnot. Um, and this kind of connection is not the, I don't see that as much as uh, the academic side of a composer, but it's almost the pop side where you're just playing a, a, a simple melody on an instrument, on a piano or something, and you, you want to connect with maybe a, a few people around you or with a crowd or something, and just, you, you're just sending this melody out to, uh, to talk to someone. 
Uh, um, and and co composition for film, it feels like I'm thinking too many things. Like for example, if I if I think of a scene, they, then I, if I would put a click track and and say, okay, I found the tempo for for this scene, and then I start building building some drums and this and that and some melodies or whatever, uh, it doesn't feel in, uh, um, there's a there's a there's not a sense of immediacy of capturing a, a vibe uh, easily. Like, let's say if you have a, a maybe a, a singer songwriter and all you have is a guitar mm. and in the space of uh, 20 seconds, maybe you find a riff and a melody that is uh, really, it feels really like you're connecting with something and uh, uh, with an emotion and, and, you're, and you're connecting with people. Um, uh, so I guess there's a simplicity in there that is not calculated or... Uh, uh, over, over, uh, overthought or um, uh, too much planning or uh, too much mathematics, uh, this and that. And sometimes there's really weird ideas that work. Uh, I find with uh, with images, for example, uh, and 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 you have to be open to let those ideas uh, happen. Um, and sometimes it feels like almost like you're cheating if you're <clears throat> not overworking something. Uh, um, so, for example, I, I would find an idea for for a for for, for a show or for a scene or something, and then I would send that to the director, and then I would keep uh, working on that that idea uh, because I have all these ideas of how to make it better and this and that. And then I send the better, you know, the optimized version to the director. And then it's like, oh, what happened? It's like we lost something. Uh, there was yeah. something there and it's not there anymore. And now there's all this stuff happening and mm. it's complicated and this and that. So um, it feels almost like you, you have to get, or I feel like I have to get uh, out of the way uh, to not screw things up, uh, to not, uh, you know, um, you know, suck the life out of an idea. And then sometimes something that feels a little bit shaky or whatever, it's, it really isn't. And there's some uh, personal, you know, insecurities and whatnot that you're throwing in there. Um, so, uh, well, yeah. that, it's, it's interesting as well, because you've got that initial creative phase where you might just be working very rough throwing down some ideas and you're not really thinking about okay which preamps am i going through etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and then if if ever you sort of decide to go back and re-record those bits they're never quite as good because there was just some energy at the time when you were coming up with the idea which then you're overthinking and can't quite uh recreate which is yeah i think um adele Adele is a, a, somebody who I think quite often the, her initial scratch vocal takes are the ones that make it onto uh, the final recording because she just, in that moment, she captures something that she doesn't, you know, later capture when she's doing multiple takes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the, uh, there's something really weird about what, what you capture in the moment. Uh, like I, I have a... Um, I have maybe maybe like uh, I don't know um, 30, forty uh, 
40 songs that I did at some point really fast um, because I was in some weird flow. I had this, I have this app uh, to record on my iPhone uh, where you can loop. So you record one loop and then a second loop and I think you have like six of them or something like that. Uh, very short loops. So, and I had a, a, a mandolin and a little charango guitar. And I started recording uh, with my iPhone. So one loop would be this idea. And then, uh, then I tried to uh, add a, a second idea and, uh, and harmonizing and, and this and that. Um, so uh, with the stock iPhone uh, recording with the mic and everything, uh, and the iPhone is on my, on my leg just sitting there uh, <laughs> and, and just grabbing ideas. And then I have all these songs. Um, and I think, okay, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to really record them. I have the, the great ideas and this and that. I'm going to make them sound good. Uh, and then I, I, I try to do that and I have a, you know, a tube mic and preamps and this and that. And, I, and first I'm trying to play it like I did and somehow I'm unable to find a way. It doesn't sound as good. And then the microphone is supposed to sound better, but somehow when I, I go back and forth with the demo and when I'm recording and something's missing, it doesn't sound so good. Uh, and it's super weird. And, and, and you know, there's been eight hours of this when I'm trying to do something better and everything sounds terrible. And, and this shitty recording on my phone, I realized this sounds really good, actually. It's like, I really appreciate there's something going on. And uh, I, I'm unable to do anything better. So, um, well, as you were talking yeah. about earlier, you know, with you, yeah. uh, with this, the, the ghetto blaster and like pressing the record button only half down to get the interesting textures. I suppose there's there's probably something interesting happening when the iPhone's just on your lap and you're yeah. and you're you're playing in a relaxed way and it's recording it in a certain way and just sonically. Yeah, yeah, it's very strange. And so was it a conscious move from, obviously you were performing live, supporting Beyonce, which is, which is quite incredible. Um, was it a conscious move to then, it sounded like a, when you were talking to begin with, it wasn't a conscious move to move into composing. Did it? How did that come about? Uh, I met with uh, Mark Munden, the director from, the, the, the Utopia director, the original one, uh, I met him in Canada because <clears throat> he was shooting some scenes for uh, this uh, BBC show, uh, The Crimson Petal and the White. And um, he heard, um, he was looking for composers um, and uh, he heard an album that I did uh, and um, uh, he wanted to meet me. Uh, uh, at that point, I didn't have anything to show uh, as far as music for a film or anything like that. But uh, <clears throat> somehow he had this idea that I, I might be good for this uh, with what he heard. So he went on a leap of faith, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and had he heard... Had he heard something similar to what we then hear in the Utopia score, or was it completely different? No, it had nothing to do. At that point, I don't think I ever done anything similar to Utopia. Um, 
I somehow fi found lots of things uh, with that show. Um, so yeah, that was my first contact with uh, uh, so how the world of um, um, uh, film and um, and uh, t series and uh, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and I guess it's the the utopia thing that. Um, transform me into a, a composer uh, in the sense that um, when I did when I did Crimson uh, so this was uh, 2012 and Utopia was uh, 2013 so uh, when we did uh, Crimson uh, it, it went pretty well surprisingly because I didn't know what I, what I was doing but uh, <clears throat> um People liked it, uh, but it, it it wasn't something like, you know, when the show came out, then I, people were calling me to, uh, and this and that and blah, blah. Um, it wasn't something that I didn't feel like, uh, okay, this is what I do now. Uh, this is, uh, I just want to be a composer and stuff like that. Uh, this really happened the year after when he called me back to do the Utopia and then Utopia came out and the reaction, the connection with the world is, <clears throat> is what felt like I don't, I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to even do uh, solo albums because it feels like <clears throat> that's what I'm doing. It feels like I'm doing solo albums, but it, it happens to work with, with the movie. So... Um, yeah. Um. It's funny as well, because when you were talking about the experimental nature of, you know, turning a, a speaker into a microphone and, and playing with tape, um, it did make me think of Utopia because it's there's so much interesting... It, it's almost like you've got highly texturized sounds in there that you've used rhythmically so there's the sounds like there's almost like a, a recording on an old radio or you've, you've recorded yourself slowed it down and then put it in there but then there's almost it's gated so that it comes in and out and is used as a, a rhythm i mean i could probably spend the next two hours going into detail on on mm. the utopia but is that is is would you, were you taking that sort of experimental textural um stuff into utopia because it very much feels like it and and obviously very rhythmical as well uh it's so abstract. It's so abstract when uh, the ideas uh, that I have to start getting into something, into a vibe, or uh, I don't know. Um, like uh, I'm not sure exactly why I brought like human bones and, uh, and a rhino turd to London. <laughs> When the, the first time I went to London to work on Utopia, and I stayed there for six months, <clears throat> and then uh, sorry, you brought uh, what? What did you bring with you? <laughs> a rhino uh, turd, uh, 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 human bones, and 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 a rhino turd that <laughs> that, that, that I brought from uh, Zimbabwe. Um, wow! <laughs> because I thought. Um, I mean, I, I could make sounds with that with that stuff and bones. Uh, they sound uh, it sounds good and uh, and blah blah. But uh, it always feels like I could just grab anything and tap on that. I mean, um, mm. 
you know, if I felt like, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, this cage for my cat is an inspiring instrument because if I, you know, I can play with sticks on it and then yeah. I, I bring it to London, uh, it's, it, it, the sound of that thing is not what is going to to be like, you know, uh, the, the, uh, it's, it's not an incredible sound that nobody heard before. Uh, it could be anything. It's just in my in my mind. Uh, uh, there's uh, it's like a creative seed. Like I can imagine things with human bones, yeah. uh, I, I, with stories. Sometimes some of, some of the shows or the films that, that I've done are really dark, uh, and there was some really dark stuff happening in Utopia and whatnot. So yeah, um, there was a little element of danger with those bones uh, somehow, and, uh, and this and that. So. I suppose it's maybe it has something to do with uh, c- ceremonial things mm. uh, more than technically speaking. Uh, you know, did I need this the, uh, the the sound of a bone or or, or, or a, or a know, rhino turd? <laughs> uh, a rhino turd does it change anything? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, but the music I'm making. Uh, it's informed by by those ideas. So the music is going to be different because I'm thinking like that. Yes. Uh, not not because the way the bones sound or anything like that. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting because so in one of the interviews I spoke to Isabel Waller-Bridge and in terms of a starting point, is she, what was very clear chatting to her was that she is very much focused on the starting point rather than the end product. Um, and she she finds influ- you know not necessarily in musical but will literally go into a book and pick a word or poem and pick a, a phrase and, and use that as a starting point and she's very much okay where am I beginning with this and less worried about where she's going obviously you have to be conscious of where it's going and whether it's right for the for picture etc etc but um, it sounds also that's a, similar to what you're saying there which is ceremonial is an interesting word as well which will i think probably segue nicely into nicely into white lotus but just mm. the starting point of human bones and ceremony and as you say i mean utopia was dark it was it was yeah. it was very dark so mm. having sort of <laughs> dead human remains as a starting point for for the series probably is is very yeah. apt um great well yes um, ceremonial is interesting so let's probably a good time to uh, go under the skin of um, white lotus under the skin So the White Lotus score also felt quite ceremonial. Mm. Uh, in the all the all the way through, there's this this it's a sense of foreboding that something's around the corner, that something ceremonial. And obviously, the 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 the, the program itself is drawing on. There's a, an undercurrent of uh, you know white people building big fancy hotels and having uh, native uh, Hawaiians mm. dancing in front of them, you know, which is kind of ceremonial. Mm. Um, so where did what did you what were you what were the starting points for um, um, any any turd involved in the starting points for White Lotus or what were they did you have certain things that you took with you that inspired White Lotus? Um, White Lotus, I, um, uh, I, uh, it was kind of a surprise project uh, for me uh, because you know they called me. Uh, and then, um, and then I met uh, I, I, Mike. I mean, we had a discussion. 
uh, and then I was working on it uh, for like uh, four weeks maybe and then we were at the mix and everything was so super fast um, wow four weeks um, uh, it was really last minute um, uh, I'm not sure why I, I think uh, they uh, they were looking for a while for the right music uh, uh uh, and somehow uh, he ended up with a, a track uh, using my my score for uh, that, that I did for uh, Black Mirror. Uh-huh. Um, he was using that all over the place, uh, and and it's the main thing he found that he was really happy about what what that was doing to the show. So th- that's why they called me. Um, and it was last minute and I had, a, you know, a few weeks and uh, there, was, there, there wasn't that much time for uh, thinking. Okay. Um, uh, outside of the conversation with Mike, you know, uh, speaking about uh, doing some kind of Hawaiian Hitchcock and this and that. Mm. Um, uh, I... Uh, Naturally, went for percussions. I suppose I, I just started jamming, uh, recording like uh, like I, like like that was the plan. But I didn't really have a plan. But uh, I know I didn't have time, so I just started uh, playing right away. And I spent days just adding tracks on top of tracks and jams uh, of percussions, uh, maybe uh, uh, mainly. Uh, and uh, and then some flutes uh, have lots of native flutes, uh, so I started experimenting with that. Um, I just like the connection with nature, or with all of those things, and uh, with the with the locals. Uh, uh, and even though the music I was doing is not uh, Hawaiian, uh, it's more the idea of. Um, um primitive music uh and the shock the uh, the clash uh you know with the with the tourists uh with the rich people and all of that uh but but it was a vague idea uh, and somehow uh, in the end um I, uh, it was a uh, maybe uh, luck or that uh, everything worked out because w- with with no time like that uh there wasn't you know a b plan uh i couldn't do a redo you know a, a yeah. completely new score uh, two days before a mix and it, it, it had to work somehow so yeah so that was a it, in many ways that was a blessing was it the fact that you didn't you didn't have time to overthink it so going back to what you yeah. were saying earlier you just had to go with it uh, and then um I was somehow finding, as I was doing uh, stuff, uh, why it, it was important or why it was uh, interesting, and how it, uh, it, the way it worked with, with the with the characters and everything. Um, there's absolutely no plan behind that for it to work the way it works. Mm. Uh, it's somehow. Uh, um, it's, a, it's just a spontaneous thing that uh, it, it just happens. And then yeah. afterwards, you know, uh, all these words start appearing with people talking and, and interviews and questions and stuff like that. And I have somehow to find 
you know, things to say about it, but uh, uh, it, it's really, I mean, I'm not sure, but it feels to me like lots of musicians are more, more spontaneous mm. than they sound where they're explaining what they did. Yeah. Uh, it feels like you could say so many deep things uh, and whatnot about, uh, you know, what you, what you do and, and blah, blah. But it, it always feels like you're somehow inventing a story where this, there's, not, there's something there, but it's subconscious. I, I think the, uh, the artist's uh, job somehow or the musician's job is uh, the good stuff. It happens in a unconscious or subconscious mm. way. Uh, you somehow let it pass through, uh, which is somehow what we were talking earlier, where uh, you don't want to sabotage uh, the good stuff with uh, you know a bunch of uh, ideas. Yeah. Um, so it feels almost like you can almost not take credit for what you're doing in the sense that I think my main credit is to is that I, I allowed some stuff to happen uh, that people liked, but uh, I was able to get out of the way and, and let that breathe uh, without killing it. So maybe that's more the talent that, you know, I organize all this stuff uh, because, you know, uh, I'm a mad scientist and everything <laughs> is mathematics and uh, it's, everything is just genius. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's interesting because I th Rick Rubin talks about this uh, in his new book about creativity. And I think Elizabeth Gilbert in um, Big Magic as well is the idea that as a as a creative, you are merely a conduit for... It's almost yeah. like there are millions of ideas or inspirational ideas floating around in the ether. And as a creative, you're a conduit. So first of all, you have to be open to receiving the idea and then you almost, you're almost you the channel for the idea rather than mm. really doing mm. anything. And that sounds a little bit like what, what you're, mm. you're talking about there. Yeah. Um, and as well, uh, that, you know... The idea that ultimately we're we're just making it up as we go along, but then in an interview afterwards, you can make it sound highly considered and intellectualized when actually it was just. And you mentioned flow as well um, earlier. Is that you, it? Sounds like as well that there's there's almost a, a flow state for you that you get into where you know you're not overthinking things; you're just allowing it to 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 happen. Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, lately. Uh, in this last couple of years, I've been trying to f uh, find ways to even work in an easier manner where uh, in the past, I, 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 let's say I've been working for, you know, five days on a, on a small idea and trying to make that perfect. And I, I've been trying to walk away from that because when I think of all those moments uh, of overworking something, it never uh, ended up in anything good uh, or anything really interesting or memorable or, or whatever. So it's interesting that you have to find a way to make your life easier, to do stuff and let it be and, and, and just move on and... and uh, and maybe check it uh, afterwards a little bit, but uh, but yeah, let it uh, have uh, a life of its own. And somehow, uh, uh, in general, when I have a balance like that that works, uh, I just feel better. I feel healthier, and the music sounds better, and yeah. everything. Uh, 
So somehow this overworking thing and torture and whatnot, um, I think it's somehow a mistake. Um, and I feel like an artist needs to find a way to not go into that thing where you're self-destroying. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I if an idea needs so much work and so much preparation and, and all that, uh, maybe it's unnatural. Maybe there's, there's an unnatural idea there and it's just not supposed to be. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, it's, it's uh, there's, there's, I don't think there's any rules that really work somehow. Sometimes you, you have to work stuff uh, a lot more than something else, but yeah, and suffering. I mean, of course, suffering it's it's an important thing, but uh, I think that's a mistake too. Thinking of okay, uh, I'm really suffering making this song, but it's not the same thing suffering in an academic way because you're overworking something, or suffering because something terrible happened to you in in real life, and then you are putting that into a song. Uh, I think there's two different things. And, yeah, okay. and so you think uh, you need to suffer to do something good. Yeah, but you need to live to do something good. To suffer sure. in the studio is a weird thing. It, it feels like uh, masturbation somehow. It's just <laughs> this, you know, a bunch of ideas and it's just nonsense. Yeah, there's there's the that kind of almost cliche of the, uh, the tortured artist that someone has yeah. to put themselves through hell. But... I think what you're touching on there is there's it's one thing to have had um have suffered and to mm. take that suffering and uh, put it into your music it's another thing to be working on in on a creative process and suffering mm. at the same time because you're putting too much pressure on yourself or mm. you know the idea's not right and you're you know, flogging a dead horse or yeah. or, or whatever there is mm. um something you mentioned earlier as well about and this is something again actually we touched on with Stephen Warbeck he he was struggling to there was a particular director who was struggling to get an idea across um and everything she was French so she was very there was no none of this sort of like yeah yeah I really like it but it's more a case of no it's not good um mm -hmm. and so it was actually when he sat down at a piano with her and rather than recording it actually performed it and had you know so not relying on on click which we we sort of touched on as sometimes and you mentioned this earlier as sometimes you know putting on a click track is it can be stifling because you're you're not feeling it in the moment how do you manage that because obviously i think a lot of you know particularly utopia but wide lotus as well and a lot of your scores are very rhythmic mm. how do you balance that in terms of not restricting yourself by having a very rigid metronome but at the same time making sure that it's working to picture i suppose it depends uh on the project but um in this case, uh, there's lots of rhythmic, uh, there's lots of pulse uh, going on. So uh, I suppose it's more a case of uh, if the music feels um, uh, feels like it's the right mood for any particular scene, and then we go from there. So if I need to score particular moments uh, uh, in one scene, then uh, there's so many tweaks uh, that that could uh, happen uh, from moving the song to the left or to the right. 
Um, uh, sometimes I do that until there's enough punches and holes in the music that have something meaningful to say about what's happening to the characters. Mm. And when, when that's close enough, then I go from there. Uh, I, I placed the, 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 the tune uh, somewhere and then I'm going to rearrange uh, around that uh, so that uh, uh, I'm hitting the, the right spots and, and then going down uh, in another moment and, and whatnot. Um, uh, so there's, a, there's lots of improvisation with that. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, sometimes the music is close enough to be scoring a scene and it doesn't need to be that, uh, you know, uh, under... Um, uh, um, it, it doesn't need to be uh, that precise, yeah. uh, you know, the scoring, uh, everything that's happening. Uh, there might be just one punch that, that's important. Um, I suppose I just play with the arrangement. Um, uh, but, but for me to, to pick a song for, for a moment, uh, it, that's just the feeling of the song. Uh, whether it's, it's, it's really the, uh, the, the right, if it's gluing to, to the emotion of the, of the scene. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Of course we won't. We, we, we're not corporate sellouts here at Sync Music Matters. We wouldn't dream of having sponsors, unless, of course, they wanted to throw large quantities of money uh, at me, in which case I'm all ears. Um, but no, as a quick aside, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy the show and could just pop onto your preferred podcast platform and give us a quick rating and a review, um, it just helps AI know that this show is worth listening to and it also makes me feel a little bit warm and fuzzy inside. Thanks very much. Let's get back to it. When it comes to something like White Lotus, obviously season two, I, really, I, I was hoping to have um, started watching it this weekend, but I didn't get a chance. So I think tonight I'm going to start on, on season two. Mm. Um, how do you go from, you know, Emmy award winning score, White Lotus one, and there's obviously been an evolution because I have, li- I've been listening to the, um, the, the score on, on Spotify. In fact, weirdly, I've, both of these series, I've listened to the scores before I've even seen the series, but mm. um, how do you evolve it? How do you sort of keep, because there are elements of uh, season two, which feel, you know, that, you've, that have, have transferred over, but what, how do you approach the, the evolution of that, of um, tapping into something which worked really well, but then allowing it to evolve naturally and, and obviously different setting. We're in Italy this time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think is the, the the theme maybe defined somehow uh, the sound <clears throat> because um, at first I wasn't supposed to to be on the second season. Um, I mean the, the first season it was supposed to be a mini series, uh, and it's because of uh, the popularity that they switched it uh, to uh, to a series. Um, so I wasn't really sure I was going to do a second season. I mean, I never do second seasons outside of uh, uh, Utopia, maybe. Uh, but um, so uh, and and I had lots of projects, and I uh, I didn't have that much time. But they asked me to do uh, at least the theme, a new theme adapted to the new location. Uh, and it's because of the concept of the show that you know every season is going to be in a different country that there's uh, an open door there to 
to changing uh, stuff so they, so they, that you know after eight seasons or something it's always the same theme it's always the same sound and uh, you know uh, whatever and and now it feels like second season two is almost like a, it's not a new theme but it feels pretty it's really really different I think from from the first one um so for the theme, I, um, I, again, I just I, I talked with Mike and we spoke about some Renaissance, uh, some Italian opera uh, elements and, uh, and whatnot. So at some point, uh, at some point, I tried to just make a, a mock-up of some Italianish sounding music uh, with some opera. And then uh, some harp and stuff like that. Um, so I started that somehow, like uh, in a light-hearted spirit. I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, do a Puccini or whatever. Uh, so it's it's a bit of a joke and a remix of the first season. Uh, I wanted to put a bunch of samples together and and to try to do something like a, a Daft Punk. Remix where I can I, I recognize that it was that song, but it's it's just a remix now. And uh, but uh, somehow um, once I had that intro, which has absolutely nothing to do with the first season, um, I started looking to how to make it recognizable. So I brought back uh, the voices from the first season which are, are instantly recognizable, even though the melody is not exactly as the first uh, season. Uh, it, uh, it's somehow recognizable um, because of the sound of, of the voices. And, um, and I started tweaking the song so that it, 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 it starts becoming something else than the intro. Um, and somehow it's, it's like... This is the White Lotus uh, heroes or whatever you want to call it uh, that uh, are appropriating uh, this new place, uh, this new vibe and whatnot. Uh, and we go into this club moment, uh, uh, anthemic uh, thing. So, um, which I don't know, maybe it's, you know, the tourist appropriation uh, of the place or, or whatever. Uh, or destruction, uh, but um, it seems to be an, a, a theme that runs throughout uh, White Lotus is the impact. Um, the vo- tell me the voices is is that your voice pitched up or is it? No, 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 no. That's a that's a um, her name is uh, Stephanie Osorio. She's a Colombian uh, singer, okay. and uh, this particular voice. Uh, I was just making her record um, 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 interesting sounds to me, and one of those sounds was her doing yeah uh, one note, uh, and it was long enough that I could play with it. I put it on a keyboard, and, and I came up with the melodies yeah. and, and the harmonies and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, once again, it's one of those things where... Uh, we were in a studio. I, I rented uh, the biggest studio in Montreal to do this uh, a vocal session because I wanted a big space. I put it, lots of mics in this place uh, in case I wanted to record uh, the voice from far and, and stuff like that. 
But then we're there and, and she's recording all this weird stuff and the engineers that are there, they are, they're like, uh, they don't understand what's happening. Uh, you know why I'm, uh, I'm paying for the biggest studio to record all this nonsense that I could be recording in a, in a bedroom, you know, in yeah. an apartment and whatnot. And uh, she didn't know what I was doing with that uh, either. And then years later, uh, um, somehow uh, the, the, the tone or the attitude in this voice uh, uh, um, and then jamming with it on a keyboard and somehow these things ap uh, appear. Uh, and it really felt like something it hit me, like something important, the way this sounded. Like, like this could be a major event in, in a song that I could make. Mm. Um, so the, the uh, vocals weren't recorded for White Lotus. They were recorded at one point and then later yeah. you decided, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Those, I had those for years and, and I had uh, those particulars, uh, particularly uh, harmonies, I had it for a couple of years because um, I think uh, in 2018, I don't know anymore, uh, a, a few years ago, um, I went to LA to uh, to work with uh, Kanye uh, with Kanye West and and uh, and this idea uh, is is the first time I jammed with those voices. I was in a hotel and I was jamming with a little keyboard, and those harmonies, uh, those mel uh, melodies uh, appeared. Um, and and uh, but this I never gave it. I, I never gave it uh, to the uh, to them or uh, even showed uh, to Kanye or whatever. So it, it was on my bank uh, for for a long time. Um, and this show seemed to be uh, uh, because I mean these voices they are what they are. It, it feels like a war cry, like something coming out of the jungle or uh, ceremonial like a ceremonial and they had uh, and, uh, and 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 so it was the perfect fit uh when i tried uh, this for the white lotus i was really hoping i could use them because it feels like such a strong uh hook uh and it's not about the melody i mean <clears throat> Throughout the song, the, uh, the melody is always changing. So there's not like one particular, uh, you know, three notes that you can, uh, that, that is, this is why this is a hook. Um, yeah, even in the new version, uh, the, 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 the harmonies are evolving from the beginning until the end of the song. It's not like a repeat, repeating always the exact same melody. Uh, but there's something about the way these voices are, are screaming or something. Uh, there's an energy there, something that feels special. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's it's interesting as well because often we think of a hook has to be a recognizable melodic motif, but mm. actually quite often a hook is is, a, is an interesting texture or mm. even rhythmical. I mean, even the, the drums that you use in, in the White Lotus score, there's sort of there's, this obviously some big boomy bass drum as well which keeps coming back and, and is recognizable and um yeah so you know there's it feels like there's a lot of a lot of hooks in there and it's not just mm. the, the preserve of of the melody mm. um you mentioned your bank do you have a a big bank of like old session recordings and samples and things that you've yeah. recorded yourself that you you go to for inspiration 
Yeah, I have lots of stuff. Um, and with every project, I experiment so much and I end up using maybe 10% of all the stuff that I did for that project. So there's always the laboratory part uh, and there's, gonna, there's going to be lots of material uh, that happened there. Um, so yeah, I have tons of sessions and demos and, and, and whatnot. And um, even the Utopia theme uh, is an idea that I had uh, for years that the, the, the hook, like, like this synthesizer, uh, <clears throat> and uh, that, at, that when I was doing Utopia, I reopened that session and, uh, and it feels like an interesting idea. Um, but it's funny because it's one of those things that, um, it felt like maybe it was unimportant in the way that I, I did it uh, because it was very fast. In like five seconds, I, I, I found this baseline, the utopia thing, uh, and I left, it, I left it there. It, it felt like something interesting, but it felt like a joke at the same time. But somehow with, the, with utopia, I, 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 I made a track then I send it to them, and then the editor was tripping. He was, uh, and he, then he put that at the beginning of the show, and blah blah. And and some uh, sometimes uh, looking at them using the music or having their feedback, I realized something may it might be more important than I thought. Like, uh, and then I realized, okay, this this baseline is really cool, actually, this utopia baseline. But uh, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent sure about anything. I mean, I was very insecure about everything, really, uh, because, uh, you know, the, this show, I remember it came out in, in January, and uh, when I was going to come out, uh, I, I was terrified. I, I thought uh, it, everything was too weird, um, and, and that, uh, you know, I, I thought in, in, in Britain, uh, the, the critics... Uh, because some, uh, you know, the, like the Crimson Pedal, that w it wasn't the craziest score ever, but uh, I think somebody in the Telegraph or whatever, they, they were very critical about it. Uh, so the, the weird sounds and this and that. Uh, so then Utopia, I thought, okay, they really got, they're going to say that I'm destroying the show with this uh, weird fucked up music and it has nothing to do with anything. So that was my vibe when when the music was when the show was going to air. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, you really you you never really know anything. And did the, how was it received critically? That the was the, the the score for Utopia. How was that received critically? Uh, they, they was really really well received. It, okay. it, it was really surprising. Um, Good. So they don't always get it wrong. <laughs> I mean. Uh, um, I mean, it's the reason why I have a Twitter account now because, uh, like, uh, you know, the director calls me and he was talking about the music. He was saying, ah, people are tripping uh, the music and this and that and blah, blah. You should go on Twitter. There's this guy from Duran Duran, uh, whatever his name, uh, Simone Le Bon, the singer from Duran Duran, he's speaking about the music for Utopia and blah, blah. Uh, so yeah, I, I opened an account just for that, uh, just to check what's going on. And, uh, and I realized it was a, a, a bit of a hit in the sense that 
it, it wasn't a BBC One uh, thing that is in, in everybody's faces with the promotion and whatnot. It was a small show. Uh, but it was it certainly felt like there was a cult happening building there um, yeah are you, are you aware that uh, on TikTok there's been lots of uh, remixes of the White Lotus 2 thing yeah too? yeah I saw some, some of that stuff uh, there was an article uh, I don't know what which uh publication it was but somebody <laughs> presented presented the, that as um like I was some somehow an expert in tech, TikTok or, or something. <laughs> like, like this theme was really made for the TikTok generation. Yeah, and, uh, I have no idea about that. Uh, uh, maybe it's a playfulness. Maybe if people feel like they can play with it or be playful with that, like it's a game. Maybe that's why it works for TikTok. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, it appears that I'm an expert in TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> you you know how to go viral on TikTok. You've got the formula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think yeah, it maybe speaks to the, the the maybe the playful nature with which you you make music that um, mm. resonates with other people. Getting a taste. <laughs> Interestingly, with all the people that I've interviewed, it always seems, for the podcast, but also when I'm just talking to people generally, it seems as this formative period from maybe 10 years old through to, to mid-20s where people are heavily influenced by the music that they, they listen to. What, what, is it, what were you listening to when you were growing up that you feel has helped inform your creativity today? When I was, like, before 10 years old, it was mainly music I would hear, like, family would be, would be playing. Um, so there was always a blend of classical and uh, some, some folk music, I suppose. A bit of everything. Um, was that music that I, they were playing on vinyl, or were they actually jamming and playing... Uh, so, so playing that on, uh, you know, on a stereo or vinyl or whatever, uh, uh, but also the live music, which is mostly um, as part of the culture in Chile, it, it, which, it, you know, it, it involves always somebody playing a nylon string guitar mm. and uh, people singing some folk, uh, some tra traditional stuff or... Uh, for parties or uh, stuff like that. Um, but when I became more, um, uh, when I started appropriating myself of the ghetto blaster and, and uh, recording tracks from, from the radio, stuff like that, uh, it was maybe around 10 years old. Um, and I would listen to anything that I liked on the radio uh, and record that. Uh, like I was a fan of Michael Jackson. Um, uh, I suppose one influence in the sense somebody who sent me in a particular path, uh, I would say, uh, I, I met my best friend at some point when I, I was uh, like 10 years old or 11 um, and he was into heavy metal and, uh, 
And he was, uh, he would laugh at the stuff I was listening to, like Michael Jackson and pop music and stuff like that. And he would say that he's all shit. And uh, uh, he was that kind of guy. Even at that age, uh, he was pretty agey and stuff. So he would show me Iron Maiden and then Ozzy and uh, all that stuff. And then Metallica. Uh, and when I got into metal, it became that extreme thing where uh, you're always looking for the more extreme new band. And then, you know, Slayer came out uh, and it was faster and angrier. <laughs> and then there was death metal and black metal. Uh, so it was really like, uh, it's, a, it's almost like a sport, uh, looking for the faster drummer uh, and, and this and that. So... I think that's the first time I was influenced by someone and got into a style particularly where there's, there's only heavy metal and everything else is shit and whatnot. So that went on for a little bit. Uh, then I, I suppose I started getting into, you know, Led Zeppelin or stuff like that, which... Uh, which I suppose my parents would listen or family would listen to when I was a kid. But uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, this may, uh, I suppose there's particular things of being born in, in South America uh, in the sense that, uh, for example, uh, our relation to folk music to local music is not a good relationship at that time it wasn't in the sense that everything that was in English or on the radio that come from the US or the UK or whatever that, that's the main thing that, that's that, that's the good stuff that, that's the important stuff and and like if you put some you know uh, uh, folk uh, Chilean music or Peru or whatever it just feel like loser music. It wasn't like, nah, this is this is not the cool stuff. The cool stuff comes come from somewhere else and, and whatnot. So there's somehow a little bit of a rejections of where, where you're from and whatnot. Uh, uh, but later, I mean, that changes with time. And then, and then at some point, uh, I realized, well, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the the richness of uh, that heritage and, yeah. uh, and all of that. Well, it is, I think something that does, they almost do hear recurring in uh, quite a lot of your music is that the almost offbeat, that, that, that which is almost mm. reggae or maybe even reggaeton. So I did wonder whether there's that, that, that South American uh, influence has, has come in. I, I don't know uh, how conscious I am that uh, if something is, uh, you know, like a Latin influ influence. Yeah. I suppose the point is it, it could be completely subconscious, couldn't it? It's just if you've grown up, whatever you've, you've grown up listening to, you've you've assimilated and taken on and then, and maybe not even in a, on, a, on a conscious level. In terms of uh, watching television or movies or TV series, was, were there any kind of seminal moments there where you saw something? I mean, obviously... From what what we talked about, there was there was never really much of a consideration to oh, I'm going to be a composer. It, it, it evolved, but were there things that you were watching when you were growing up, which made you sort of double take and go, "Wow, that's really cool," and you think may have because it it strikes me there's with a lot of your music and a lot of your scores, there's um 
almost sense of unease and quite often that's you know that's what the music is trying to do it's trying to create that sense of unease around um whatever's happening visually um but was there were the things that you think you've watched that which have influenced that i mean was horror a big thing um for you growing up yeah yeah i always like horror um since i can remember um but uh, I don't. I don't remember horror music being an influence at all. Uh, I think the unsettling vibes or stuff like that uh, might be a personal thing. Uh, I, just uh, something um, I'm somehow looking for or. Not looking for, but looking to express, I suppose. So maybe I, I pick uh, projects that allow me to express that. Um, uh, and that might be uh, just a reflection of... Um, uh, 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 personal experience, just life experience, uh, uh, just uh, childhood and, and whatnot... Uh, so, um, but but not uh, it's not a conscious thing where I was you know uh, really influenced by the ho- uh, let's say horror music or 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 I don't know uh, hardcore cinema or I don't know what uh, uh, it's just uh, a, na- a natural thing that I, I gravitate to. Yeah, that's interesting because I often think about. The you know the creative voice and that every every artist or creative has a has a creative voice, and sometimes it almost feels like there's a there's a journey to. Somebody introduced me to the concept of you don't have to find it because it's within you. It's a question of yeah. hearing it. Um, yeah. But if it sounds like listening to you, that um, there's not been any sort of conscious search for a creative voice. It's always just been a very natural expression of what's inside you at any given time, and and probably has evolved over time, but is just very yeah. organically yeah well i think listening to people helps a lot in the sense that uh a mu- a music uh for me it feels like a necessity and since i'm making music to connect with people uh then um you know directors and producers and the people i work with uh uh they help me realize uh uh, uh, through, through, throughout uh, the time I spent doing this, uh, uh, I learned like everything about the, the, the what I'm doing or what's important about what I'm doing, uh, or why something that I'm doing connects, uh, and, and blah blah and so on. So uh, this uh, this dialogue has been super important for me to understand. Uh, um to to maybe feel more comfortable uh, about uh, the this uh, the sound uh, that, that I do uh but but to maybe to be also conscious uh what's uh, important in there but i mean i don't think it's it's a, i don't think it's a it's a lonely uh i mean it's a, it's lonely work in the sense that uh, you spend so much time alone working in a studio uh but it's not lonely in the sense that it's so dependent on the the feedback and how it connects with people 
So it's really a common communication uh, tool uh, for me. Yeah, a very collaborative in nature. Um, and you mentioned briefly earlier about the utopia uh, when it when it came out. You were a, were a bit worried. And obviously, it turns out there was no need to be worried. A bit like when uh, George Lucas went on holiday when Star Wars was going to be released because he was worried it was going to flop. Do you still, when you're submitting cues, do you still have that? Do you second guessing yourself, or have you, you know, or have you reached the point where you're sort of like, yeah, this is this is right, or is there still that underlying like, oh, I hope this hits what they're going to think? Yeah, uh, there is moment where it feels like. Um like, uh, you know, I, I nailed this cue uh, and it feels like I'm pretty sure that everybody's going to love them in the production. Uh, there's moments like that, uh, but there's always, uh, that never changes. There's always the, the, uh, these things that uh, I'm sending somehow reluctantly. And then I realized it was the right movie because it was like just the thing that we're waiting for uh, and that I was not sure about. So I suppose in a way uh, that makes me take myself less uh, seriously uh, and I, t I, I, I try to take a, a nothing too seriously because uh, this stuff, uh, yeah, like, you know, you, you do something, uh, you don't know if it's any good. And you so how how to send it and see if it has a life of its own, if, if it can, you know, if it can find a way through, with people and whatnot. And when it does, it just feels really interesting. It's almost like, uh, I don't know, it's like putting a life out there and it finds a way to live and you leave it alone and it's great. And then they tell you, ah, this life, this is amazing. This works for us and we can work with it and it's great. But uh, the fact that I don't know that, it's like, uh, it's just, it does so much guesswork and uh, just trusting, trusting a tiny instinct that maybe you have to do this, even though you're not sure and, you know, st stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a, a hugely important lesson in creativity generally is being an unattached to the outcome because as you say like whether something's good or bad is highly subjective and and it's not necessarily whether it's good or bad it's whether it's right um yeah. and and you only find out by by putting ideas out there and, and mm. all these lives as you call it put it putting that life out there and seeing whether um it's it's right for the for the production mm. um amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to chat it's been absolutely fascinating getting to know uh, getting to know you and the, the process um I'd like to finish off with a couple of quick fire questions. Um, the first one, this is the this is the serious deep part. Uh, what's your favourite biscuit or cookie? Uh, I like cookies with cream in the middle. You think an Oreo or custard cream? Do you have, do you get custard creams in Canada? That's a very British thing. Really. Yeah. I, I'm a fan of custard cream, but I don't know any biscuits with, with custard cream. I'm going to have to try that next time. Yeah, hey, next time you're in London, go to go yeah. get a, a custard cream. Well, I have to say I'm not a massive fan of them, but they generally okay. turn, turn up as a, like a firm favourite. And In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Prince Charles has custard creams at his coronation. That's how um, okay. staple they are. <laughs> um, what scares you? Um... Corporative people. 
Co- uh, as in corporations? Or corporations, co- yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, big, yeah, okay. <laughs> We won't go too political, but I, yeah, I hear, I, I hear you on the, I hear you on that front. Um, I give you so the the other question, the final question is: um, What advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, to trust it, to uh, in the sense of not trying to be in control, mm-hmm. uh, because somehow things worked out, um, which is something that you hear often, but it's somehow. Uh, abstract when you hear that when somebody tells you that you know how that works exactly yeah uh, so I, it's, I suppose is really to find for me uh, what feels like the truth and sticking to that even though sometimes you don't have the support around that but if, if it really feels like the right thing to do to me uh, sometimes I would do something that on the spot seems really weird Mm. And then a year later, I realize what, you know, uh, what I'm collecting because of that, uh, what the amazing things that happened because of that. Uh, and sometimes it, it, it has taken many years for something that I thought I, I did a mistake about something and it really wasn't. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it's hard, but to find that, that inner voice that says the truth uh, because everything it's so uh, foggy out there. Yeah, I think it's it is abstract and it's it's hard. It's it's is it hard to you can understand it intellectually or rationally, but it's it's hard to implement, isn't it? But I think the more you go through those experiences, and as you say, you can look back and and see. Even even the times that are very difficult, adversity, you can at the time it's very hard to see that this can have any benefit or to that you should trust the process. But then when you look yeah. back, you, you, there's always a lesson in there, something and something comes from yeah. it, and just trusting that um, that that will be the case. But yeah, amazing. Well, Christabel, thank you, merci beaucoup, thank you so much for taking time to chat. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>